This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Hi, my name is Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is How to Love Lit Podcast. Christy is an advanced placement and international baccalaureate literature teacher, and she's also a nationally certified board English teacher. Gary is an APIB psychology and history teacher, musician, and Kansas City Chiefs fan. If you're listening to us from outside the United States, the Chiefs have been a pretty average American football team for a long time. That's the kind with the brown oval ball. But this year, they discovered this amazing 23-year-old quarterback named Patrick Mahomes, and that left America starstruck because it gave the Chiefs a shot at winning a Super Bowl. But I digress. We're coming to you from Memphis, Tennessee. Let's get back to the task at hand. Yes, that was indeed a digression. (laughs) But today, we're going to provide a supplemental analysis of the poem Bradbury refers to in Section 2 of the book. The Sieve and the Sand. When Montag approaches the women in his apartment after meeting with Faber. In the story, Montag reads lines from Matthew Arnold's famous poem, Dover Beach. We're going to read the poem in full, and Christy's going to help us analyze Dover Beach. Together, make some connections as to the parallels between this poem and Fahrenheit 451. For sure, this has been a fun book, and we hope that you liked it. Next week, We're looking forward to starting our discussion on our next book, or in this case, our next play, A Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry. And no, this is not a book about raisins. No, it's not a book about drying out in the sun, even though people think it is. It's probably the second most popular book that I teach after The Great Gatsby. You will absolutely fall in love with Hansberry's characters as she develops an argument about dreams, disillusionment, and resiliency. Remember, if you're enjoying our discussions, don't forget to subscribe and check out our website, especially if you're an educator looking for notes. Now, back to the topic at hand. Christy, you have to know that most of us really don't like poetry. As a matter of fact, it's probably something that your students may dread the most. But I want to tell our listeners 
Christy is actually an excellent poetry teacher. I have watched her convert many souls to liking poetry. Anyway, tell us what is even the point, and then let's talk about this poem in question. Oh, well, that's so sweet. Um, poetry is difficult because it's designed to make you think, and that's never, that's always energy producing or energy creating. But um, it's different from nonfiction because it's trying to do something that's different from nonfiction. It's not trying to explain to you how to do something. It's not trying to teach you how to put together a washing machine. It's not trying to tell you a story. What it's trying to do is get you to experience something the way that the author is experiencing. It's trying to get you to participate and broaden your experience so that you can feel whatever it is that that artist is feeling. It's very much like every other form of art, like music or painting. I kind of think of it like photography. Now, I'm not a very good photographer. You know this. I can take a picture and uh, it's very stale. It's just a picture of a person. But there are people, and you're way better at it than I am, honestly, that they take a picture and you go, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> or you look at it and you're angry. Or you look at it and you're sad. Or the picture tells a story that you didn't know was there until you looked at it. Yeah, all that kind of goes together. You're feeling what that artist is wanting you to feel. And so he's doing this with words. Now, it's not always beautiful. And I don't know that this poem kind of is a mixed bag. It's not trying to be beautiful. It's not always moralizing. You know, people are saying, what's the point? What's he trying to say about life? Well, sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not. There's really kind of four things that a poem is trying to engage. And this is why it kind of stretches us. First of all, it's engaging your senses. But you're not looking at it, and you're not listening to it. So everything has to be recreated in your mind. So that means it's got to engage your imagination. So you're going to be imagining the senses or the sensory experiences that the author is supposed to be creating. And through these senses and through your imagination of these sensory experiences, then you're going to engage your emotion and your intellect. So you're talking about sensory imagery, imagination, emotion, and intellect. And that's why it's hard. So it's almost like a puzzle. You're putting all these four components together and that's that brings meaning or life to any set of words that, uh, that the author is communicating. So how do you read it? Well, I want to interject something here quickly. These are, these are four great points for the listener to keep in mind when they're reading a poem. Senses, imagination, emotion, and intellect. And when you realize that the poet accomplishes all four of these in a very short amount of time and with a sparse amount of words, that's what makes it artistic. Exactly. So how do you do it? Well, first of all, you have to read it slowly. You have to read it slowly because you have to think of every word and every phrase as important in creating a part of this picture that you're supposed to be looking at. So you have, what I generally tell people to do is read it once so that you kind of have an overview of what you're going through, but then uh, kind of go through it very slowly. And as you read it, 
make that movie go in your mind and visualize every single thing that you're supposed to see. So after you read it and then you visualize it, then you got to go through it a third time. This is what I mean. It's Talk about a mindfulness activity. If you focus on a poem, you're going to crowd out every other problem in your life because it forces you to have this intense focus on this one experience and you're supposed to be filled with this experience and this emotion when you put all the parts together. And that's the fun of it. And so when you get it, you're like, ah, and that's where the passion is provoked. And I have to tell you, you're the very first person that has ever explained that to me ever about poetry. Well, I'm not the only one, but thank you very much. It's not common. Yeah. All right. So here we go. So in this particular poem, I would suggest, and we're going to do it, we're going to read it and then we're going to look at the images and then we're going to look at all like this, what we would consider like the supporting casts. So things like rhythm and rhyme and punctuation they don't give meaning to a poem. In other words, a rhyme can't tell you anything. All it is is a sound. But a rhyme can enforce or reinforce an idea or draw attention to a particular phrase that is in conjunction with the attitude or the meaning of the poem. And I'll give you an example. In this one, this is about waves. And he's kind of tried to make the flow of the poem. He's going to use a strategy called enjambment. In other words, he's going to roll over the words from one line to to the next the way that a wave would roll onto the sand. And this kind of supports this rolling tide of thought and imagery that you're really supposed to have in your mind the whole time that you read the poem, the wave of the sea is crashing in. Does that make sense? Yes. So that's kind of the way that you're supposed to see. And I'll point some things out uh, as we go along. But in general, you know, that's where you find the meaning. And I think this poem isn't really a really complicated poem, but it's also not a very simple poem. You tend to think that the newer, and this is in prose, the newer the book is, the easier it is to understand because the language is more modern. I find poetry, the older the poem is, the easier it is to understand. Because modern poets are so darn freaking cryptic. And they use stream (laughs) of consciousness. And they're using all these abstractions. And you can't understand what they're saying. And the the older poems tend to be way more straightforward in their ideas and in their attitudes. So here you've got, it's not super old. So it's kind of in the middle. We're going to see some modern ideas, but you're also, it's primarily very, I find it to be very straightforward and, and the ideas that he's uh, kind of contributing uh, to, the, to the conversation, which is interesting. And uh, let's start off by talking about who the dude is because I think that matters and, in conjunction to why Bradbury was interested in highlighting this particular poet who is writing at this particular time in history. So before we get into the poem itself, I want us to take a minute, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, Arnold. The guy who wrote the poem is named Matthew Arnold, and I'm going to, and I want you to kind of fill in the blanks that I am less informed about, about what's going on uh, during the life of this guy. So this guy, Arnold, is British. He was born in 1822 died in 1888, 
ironically, two years after he had toured the United States on, a, on his second lecture tour. But he was born in England on the banks in this little village of the River Thames. So love that river. <laughs> uh, his dad was a clergyman, Dr. Arnold. And Dr. Arnold not only was a clergyman, but he was also a headmaster of a school called the Rugby School. This is interesting because you see here that, uh, and this is why it connects, there are many ways, but this is one thing that connects to Bradbury. This guy had a very strong grasp of religion, and he also had a strong grasp and was a big believer in education, which is going to come out. In fact, he spends a whole decade of his life really talking and lecturing about the values of culture and education, kind of something that Bradbury was also super passionate about. Oh, very much so, and a big important message in Fahrenheit 451. Yes, exactly. Uh, he wasn't a professional poet in the sense that he didn't make his livelihood uh, off of poetry. Instead, uh, he had a job, and for most of his life, for 35 years actually, he was the inspector of schools, which means that he would travel across the country and look in at these middle-class British schools, which I think it's super funny because he thinks, in his opinion, the British middle class he described more than one time as dull. I don't know what he thought about middle-class living. <laughs> middle class. I don't find it dull. I'm middle-class, but he did. Uh, maybe they do it differently on the other side of the pond. Hmm. But anyway, so he was inspecting school after school. He also went over a lot and saw a lot of schools in France and Germany, so he had a really important grasp on what, in his mind, he developed this really definitive perspective on what a good English education was. And he was really committed and felt that it was his passion and purpose in life to create a satisfactory system of education for the emerging middle class. And in the 1840s and 50s, the middle class is kind of a big deal. And of course, I get my education from Downton Abbey, where they take us through this emergence of the middle class. But tell us about uh, England in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s. And I want to say that this poem came out of the 1850s, just so okay. you know. Uh, Matthew Arnold, um, again, well, first of all, my bias is every writer is a product of their age and product of their environment, and only because... Your, your culture seeps into your psychology in so many ways you can't even codify or even be aware of. And then it, it comes out in your writing and in your worldview. Uh, he is alive during what's called the Pax Britannica. It's like 1815 to up to World War I where England had had this long period of stability. It, had, it was the Victorian age. Uh, Queen Victoria rules for a long time. They had the Victorian... Morality. They've also uh, are going through a part of the Industrial Revolution, so there's a lot of cultural change going on during that time period. And what's interesting is that before the time this poem is written, Karl Marx is writing his Communist Manifesto. And shortly after this poem is written, we have Darwin publishing his Origin of the Species. So he's right in the middle of this, uh, this torrent of Victorian morality, communist thought, Darwinistic thought. Uh, there's a huge evangelical religious reform movement going on against the Church of England. Uh, Methodism is becoming prominent. There's a large agnostic free thinker movement that's going on. Mass industrialization. 
there's a, a sort of World's Fair that goes on the year this poem is published, and uh, Matthew Arnold is a little bit dismayed because at the World's Fair, the science and technology exhibits draw far more visitors than the culture and arts exhibits. So he's starting to foreshadow um, Bradbury's view on technology, technology in society. I and this is 100 years before. You know, as you talk, it reminds me, William Blake, who's a little bit before, well, a lot before William, um, Matthew Arnold, wrote poems about, you know, the British industrialization. And some of his famous were about chimney sweeper children and the way that the Industrial Revolution uh, was was destroying kids' lives. Is, is that something that, you know, is more than just William Blake? Oh, no. The Industrial Revolution has revolutionary effects, which is why it's called a revolution. It doesn't matter if it happens in Britain, the United States, or China. Any country that goes through an Industrial Revolution has these huge convulsions in society where, for a while, large groups of people are displaced and crushed by the revolution, but once you get on the other side of the Industrial Revolution, all of a sudden, every country that's been through it has an explosive burgeoning middle class. And all of a sudden, you have a group of people who uh, now have a standard of living they didn't have previously. So the Industrial Revolution brings about class revolution, which, of course, is going to lead to the isms that we're going to see uh, in another century. But one thing I want to read you is a quote that I found regarding this time period because I thought it was interesting. It says, Between 1780 and 1850, the English ceased to be one of the most aggressive, brutal, rowdy, outspoken, riotous, cruel, and bloodthirsty nations in the world, and it became one of the most inhibited, polite, orderly, tender-minded, prudish, and hypocritical. Now, that's revolutionary change. And for listeners, I'd like to point out, when you're studying history, the only thing in history worth studying is change over time. If what you're studying doesn't represent some type of fundamental change, whether it's political, economic, or social, then it ceases to be interesting to us. And so we have Arnold living here um, at a time period when England has this stability of the Victorian era, but we've got the undercurrent of all these under ideological changes and these industrial changes. So people walk around and they live in these things and it affects their worldview. And so the poets write about it. Well, that right there is actually at the heart of what this particular poem is about. But before we talk about the poem itself, I, I want to point out a, a few parallels between Arnold's view of the world and Bradbury's view of the world. Um, this poem was written in the 1850s and that's after the 1850s. He really doesn't write a lot of poetry. He goes on to writing literary criticisms he gets this job working for oxford for a few years as a adjunct professor of poetry but and he criticized he literary criticism means you're doing what we're doing you're talking about poems mm -hmm. and then he goes on to write lecture series and essays about religion and educational reform and it is in this context that i really see him mirroring many of the ideas that Bradbury is really advocating in this book. One uh, he spoke. Uh, one thing that they really parallel is their perspective on religion. Now Bradbury was raised a Baptist. Um, Brad uh, Arnold was the son of an Ang of a I guess an Anglican minister. I could be wrong about that, but I think it's an Anglican minister. So they were raised in the church, but neither one of them really grew up to be men of faith. Uh, 
Arnold looked at the Bible as a great work of literature, like the Odyssey, and he looked at the church as a great organization like Parliament, and he really believed in both of them, and they thought they should be preserved, but he didn't believe that the church should be preserved because of its historical credibility on Christianity. But he really thought that the government and the church were both agents of culture, and they contributed to making humanity more civilized. What you're talking about, less warlike, less aggressive, less barbaric in every way. I think this is a view that I see reflected in Bradbury's perspective of the world. He was seeing the world as this fight against violence and chaos and religion and education and culture have an effect of taming the wild nature of man. Uh, Arnold saw culture as a means of awareness of humanity's past and a capacity to enjoy the best of art, literature, history, and philosophy that had ever been written from the past. And he understood that as a way of viewing life in all of its aspects, socially, politically, and religious. So he, bottom line, culture represents a way of curing a sick society from those things that are constantly attacking us. And I I don't know if this is true or not. You can ask yourself to what degree to this is true, but I honestly think that Bradbury completely agrees that this is true. Well, from what you're describing, it doesn't sound like Matthew Arnold used the word culture to represent an elitist point of view. He used the word culture to represent a reformist point of view. Yes, for sure. And, uh, you know, for him, and I know this is going to be the criticism right off the bat, oh, you're talking about... Western culture, and I don't know that he would isolate it to that. Whatever is giving you an anchor, whatever is creating in you this internal reflection and discussion and harness on those things that are trying to create chaos in your world, that's what is going to help you kind of that's create virtue in your own world and in your own way. So he sees religious documents, sacred texts, as creating this fundamental value and harnessing people's uh not just their intellect but their spirit so to speak and this is uh the main value of going to school and studying and so forth so in that way i feel like there is no more appropriate poet i don't know of any other poet that really shared i could be wrong i'm not an expert i like i said i don't have a doctorate in British literature at all so there may be another dude out there that that spoke to this in a broader way but I don't know that there's a more famous one that spoke to this topic in a way uh, more eloquently than Matthew Arnold and what's even more important than that it doesn't matter whether we understand all that what matters is that Bradbury picked this Mm -hmm. and so this poem says what Bradbury wanted to say at that exact point in the book yes and remember at this exact point in the book well, tell us what's happening. Do you remember what's happening in this point of the book? He's Montag has been off with Faber. Do you remember that? Yes. And he's being introduced to books, and now he decides he is going to read to the ladies. Yes. It's almost, it kind of reminds me of, um, oh, in, in The Scarlet Letter, when Dimsdale you know, decides he's going to run away, and he gets yes. his courage. Has his moment of revelation. And he wants to teach the kids how to cuss. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and here's the truth. 
a little knowledge is dangerous. You have to <laughs> you have to learn how to harness it and use it. And so now we see Montag understanding that now, oh my gosh, books are important. All this literature is important. Let me experiment with it. And, and he's he's playing with a with a weapon. He doesn't know how to yes, wield yet. Yes, and he picks a you know, relatively mild poem. There's no cussing in this poem. But he says this, and I want you to listen to it. First, the words, and if you have your, um, you know, your smartphone, I've never tried to, to teach a poem without somebody looking at it before, so this is a first for me. But it wouldn't hurt you just kind of look at it, even if you're running on a treadmill, as I read it, and think and try to visualize everything that you're supposed to see. If you've ever seen pictures of the Dover Cliff, Dover and Calais are 20 miles from each other. They're across, you know, that part in, in England that crosses the, the, channel. the channel over to France. And, you know, every, all these movies, they have these beautiful women that they stand on the tops of the cliffs. And it's, it's really, <laughs> beautiful, the I know, they're gorgeous. And uh, they're unlike anything really in our part of the world, for sure. We don't even have an ocean. Memphis, Tennessee, we got the edge of the river and that's all. <laughs> But There's no cliffs of Dover. No, on no, the Mississippi. no. We have a bluff. No, but that's it. So anyway, this is the view, and it's absolutely breathtaking. Anybody can Google that image, and you know that it is. Uh, I do wonder, as he talks about the scene from Dover, you get the impression that it's a clear night, and perhaps you could see across the twenty miles to the sparkling lights of France. I don't know. It's not necessary, but. This is the image that you're supposed to get. The sea is calm tonight. The tide is full. The moon lies fair upon the straits. On the French coast, the light gleams and is gone. The cliffs of England stand, glimmering and vast, out in the tranquil bay. Come to the window, sweet as the night air. Only from the long line of spray where the sea meets the moon-blanched land, listen. You hear the grating roar of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling at their return up the high strand. Begin and cease and then again again begin with tremulous cadence slow and bring the eternal note of sadness in. Sophocles long ago heard it on the Aegean and it brought into his mind the turbid ebb and flow of human misery. We find also in the sound of thought hearing it by this distant northern sea. The sea of faith was once, too, at the full, and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind, down the vast edges, drear and naked shingles of the world. Ah, love! Let us be true to one another. For the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. And we here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. So, if you're like most students, you're like... (laughs) So let's kind of break it down and and see what we're looking at. First of all, let's go by the the technical stuff. How many lines and all that kind of stuff. 
The first stanza has 14 lines. If you add the second and third stanza together, you have 14 lines, and the third stanza has nine lines. So if you know anything about poetry, and let's see how much you know, 14 lines make a... I'm going to go with sonnet. Yay! <laughs> Gold star. A sonnet. Now, sonnets are... You know what they are, generally speaking? Love poems. Love poems. So he's going to start off in the style of a love poem. I'm two for two. Yes, but uh, love poem, well, sonnets in general are usually written in iambic pentameter. You know why? Because it mimics the beating of the human heart. Ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. But his doesn't. So it, it's a fail. The sea is calm tonight. You think it's going to be uh, iambic pentameter, but it's not. And neither is the rhyme scheme. So it's a mixed up love. It's not right. And you're supposed to think, this isn't, there, something's wrong with this love. The second and the third stanza cr create kind of a little bit of a variation of a Petrarchian sonnet. A Petrarchian sonnet is a different kind of, was made famous by this guy named, um, Petrarch, he's an Italian guy, and he had unrequited love. So he loved and his love wasn't returned. So you kind of have this, which is interesting when you think about what they're talking about in the second and third stanza. I want to love, but there's nothing there back. I'm not getting anything back. And then the third stanza, the fourth stanza is nine lines. So you don't have a complete love. It's an incomplete love, which again, like I said, structure supports meaning. So just because it has nine lines doesn't create meaning. But when we talk about what it means, you're going to say that he feels something is incomplete. And he's, you know, asking this woman and you get the impression maybe or maybe she's not going to respond. So going for there, that's the structure. Another thing that is the structure of this poem is it's written as a dramatic monologue. Now, a dramatic monologue is generally speaking as is like, well, a monologue is when one person talks. We see that in the theater. And there are a lot of these during this Victorian era. The most famous by Robert Browning is about this dude who kills this wife because she wouldn't do what he wants her to do. So called um, The Last Duchess. So there's a lot of um, monologues. But generally, they're not about the person. Like, the author of the poem isn't the speaker in the poem. They're not the same. We don't know if Matthew Arnold is writing as Matthew Arnold or if he's just some dude. He, it could be either one. So not necessarily autobiographical. It doesn't matter. All right, so we get to this. The first image of the poem, all we see are these peaceful images of the sea. I was happy reading these first 14 lines. You're supposed to be. Good. The sea is calm tonight. The tide is full. The moon lies fair upon the straits on the French coast. The light, which is an image of maybe something that, uh, well, goodness to some degree, gleams and is gone. The cliffs of England stand, glimmering and vast, out in the tranquil bay. So everything that you see is literal visual imagery. So it's everything is for your eyes to recreate, and it's all very pretty. There's no metaphors. There's nothing like that. And then he's going to give his first command, we presume, to the woman. Command number one, come to the window, because you're supposed to be looking at this beautiful view. Sweet is the night air, only from the long line of spray, where the sea meets the moon-blanched land. 
So all these things come and look, look how pretty, look how pretty. And you're supposed to see all these things and imagine whatever the most beautiful picture of the cliffs of Dover you've ever seen. And then he's going to switch up. Listen. And that's what we call a telegraphic sentence. One word only. Listen. Stop. And then he's going to change. And now everything else from this point to the end of the stanza is auditory. Things that you're supposed to hear. You hear the grating roar of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling at their return up this high strand, begin and cease, and then begin with tremulous cadence, slow, and bring the eternal note of sadness in. You hear the grating roar. So grating is a negative word of pebbles, which the waves draw back and fling at their return up the high strand. So all of a sudden we shift from everything being beautiful to things getting on your nerves again and again, the grating, slow, tremulous cadence. And then it goes in even more negative, eternal note of sadness. Well, that, that went out of control quickly. It did. And then he stops and he breaks. And then he's going to go on and reference this guy named Sophocles. Now, Sophocles is a Greek writer of tragedy. And his first, two most famous pieces, the ones that everybody knows, is Oedipus and Antigone. And in both of those stories, it's about things going badly and, and people dying. <laughs> and he says, Sophocles long ago heard it on the Aegean. And it brought into his mind the turbid ebb and flow of human misery. So what did he hear? Well, he heard this eternal note of sadness. So the waves, they're so pretty, but if you listen, they're not. They're sad. They're going on and on this cadence that's great because it's so sad. And if you listen, you're going to be like Sophocles and produce writing where people <laughs> marry their mother and kill their father and stab their eyes out and then bury their sister in boxes and this is the kind of thing that that's a lot of human misery it, i mean he peeks out no okay. one gets more morbid than than sophocles we find also in the sound a thought so what's the thought hearing it by this distant northern sea so we there's something in that that's so sad and and whatever it is he hasn't really told us Maybe Sophocles hears it, but he's the only one. So with, unless you want to read all the works of Sophocles, what is the sound that he hears? So then he switches to the next uh, stanza, and he says, The Sea of Faith, and this is capitalized. Uh, like it's a title of something. And so it's not just like a faith, like I have faith that this table's going to hold my computer as it sits on it. Faith with a capital F. So we're talking about religion. And he's saying this, there, there used to be this sea of faith, was once too at the full and round earth shore, lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. Now, furled was a word that I had to actually look up in the dictionary because I don't use that word. But it means rolled or folded neatly. And here's the idea. He's comparing, and this is your metaphorical language beginning, sea is a met, faith is a sea, but it's also a girdle, and the idea being it holds you up the way that a girdle would hold a woman's stomach in and create in her a good posture. And so it, it holds the world up, 
but now I only hear its melancholy, long withdrawing roar, retreating. So this is what I mean. You were talking about Darwinism and um, Marxism and the other isms of the time period that were developing. Yeah, the science. So mm. the, he sees science as kind of this aggressing force because today we see science and faith they have to meld or they're not real uh but they saw them as actually in opposition to each other so science was contradicting faith and so that's what he's saying now i don't have faith because science i'm believing in science so now i'm losing faith and because i'm losing my faith the world is naked to me like everything that was holding me up I'm losing, it's not real. And so the night wind down the vast edges drear, there's these naked shingles of the world that are exposed. And I see it for what it really is, and it makes me sad. And disillusioned from what I'm gathering. Yeah, and in this case, you get the impression that it's disillusioned. So what's his response? And we get to the last stanza, uh, number three, which only has nine lines. It's this broken sonnet. And he looks to the girl and he says, oh, love. And this is the part that Montag reads. He reads the O.C. of Faith part, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he reads this one to the women, too. He goes, oh, love, ah, love, let us be true to one another. And there's an exclamation point now. It's like he's begging her. Let's be true to each other. Kind of the, the sentiment that you see Montag asking Mildred, please, Mildred, hold me. Be true to me. Let's have a conversation. Let's be real. Let us be true to one another. Little f, for the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new. This idea, look, you've got these four walls and on the four walls of your pretty little living room, there's something new and there's something that's beautiful, but I don't see it as being real because it has neither joy nor love nor light. These are our basic human virtues, the values that make our lives good joy nor light nor sortitude nor peace nor help nor pain it goes on and on so it gives this impression that's like endless i'm losing all my human values all my human virtues are going away in this sea of faith that's going that's dying right before my eyes so he says at least in the midst of all this we should be true to one another And we hear, as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. And then in Fahrenheit 451, they were literally clashing in the night as he was reading this poem to these women. Which is brilliant how Bradbury works this poem into the narrative of the story. Exactly. And it's the exact sentiment that he wanted to convey of those two characters at that moment. And ironically, the meaning that Arnold's perspective of the world matches exactly up with Bradbury's is also kind of very cool to me. So what do you think? Do you like it? Oh, I love it now that you've explained it to me. Thank you. I mean, it's a, it's a nice... I mean, I don't know that I agree with him. And that's the thing about any art or literature. or It's an argument. He's making this case... Uh, You can take it or leave it. You can take him to task. I think we should definitely be true to one another. Uh, I don't know that the world is as... I don't know that I believe the world is as dark as he feels that it is. And I don't believe... You know, my sea of faith is not eroding 
over time. But and that's the thing, you know, take it or leave it, argue or not argue. That's what he wants you to do. The artist gets to say what the artist wants to say, and the, as does the critic. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I guess that's a wrap. Uh, like I said, Fahrenheit 451 is one fun book. Uh, everyone should read it. I really do believe that. Uh, and everyone should love it. I believe that too. So, coming to you from Memphis, Tennessee, we again thank you for sharing your time with us today. Reach out to us anytime on our Facebook, Instagram page, or website. And until next time, until we begin our journey into the play of Raisin in the Sun, don't forget to subscribe. Peace out. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.